You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Today's teaching from The Greatest Story is entitled, Already But Not Yet. Good evening, friends, and welcome to our final week of study. It has been such an honor to journey with you through the narrative of Scripture, seeking the heart of God. And I trust that uh, the Spirit will continue to use what you've learned this semester to transform you in the months and the years to come. This isn't just information that we add to our mental libraries. This is the one true story of what's really real about God, about the world around us, and about ourselves. And when we align with God and his narrative, that drastically changes our everyday lives. I began the study trying to convince you of how influential story is. Consciously or not, every one of us is believing a narrative, is being shaped by it, and is living accordingly. We must be the gatekeepers of our hearts and minds to be sure that we're taking in the truth of God and not the counterfeits of the world. When you walk out those doors tonight, you're not going to re-enter WBF for about two months. So what will your time in the Word look like during the break? We hope and pray that WBF is increasing your hunger to want to be in the Scripture for yourself. And not that it's this cycle of feasting during the semesters and then famine in between. Stay in the Word. On these pages is life. This is your daily bread. I offer you two simple tips for staying in the word. Life hack. It's not that profound. Number one, make a plan. And number two, find a friend. Link arms. And when I say make a plan, this is nothing elaborate. I simply mean what are you going to read or study? Nothing kills a scripture reading habit like flipping aimlessly through the pages with no direction. Have you been there? I have. (laughs) And the reason I encourage doing this with a friend is not just for accountability, but because processing the word in community is a piece that you might be missing without WBF. You don't even have to be reading or studying the same thing. Just make a point to touch base regularly and talk about what God is teaching you through his word. Remember, we become what we behold. So let's behold the beauty and glory of our God that we may grow in his likeness. Okay, let's get into our content for this evening. We're concluding our time together talking about the kingdom of God. And I realize this has been a theme all throughout the semester, but we're going to pull it all together tonight. Now that we've gotten past Christ's redemption in the storyline, I hope you're beginning to see how God's intention for creation has been interwoven into this plan the whole way through. God's intention is to fill the earth with his glory by establishing his kingdom among and through his people. And we learned last week that is accomplished through Christ by uniting all things to him. He's creating a new humanity joined to God that will love him and live within his design. We don't know how much time elapsed between creation and the fall, but then the entire Old Testament spans the gap, essentially, between the fall and redemption. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell the story of redemption through Jesus Christ, and then the rest of the New Testament 
spans that gap between redemption and glorification. And like I said previously, God's kingdom didn't just come on the scene at the Gospels. This has been his heartbeat from the very beginning. As of this last week of homework, you should now have four P's of kingdom. We're going to use these to follow the thread of kingdom through the Old Testament. Someone give me one of the P's of kingdom. Presence. The presence of the Lord. What else? People, place, and what's the last one? Purpose. Right. Great job. The Garden of Eden was the purest form of God's kingdom so far. God's presence was with his people in his place. They had purpose. They had work to do. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue, have dominion. All to the glory of God in bearing his image. But with the fall into sin, all of those things were broken. Presence, people, place, and purpose. And now there's another layer of the story that we haven't talked much about. But when humanity rejected God, this broken creation was given over to the temporary authority of Satan. And since that time, there have been two dueling kingdoms, good versus evil, light versus darkness, a cosmic battle for the souls of mankind. And don't be fooled into thinking these kingdoms are equally matched. We already know the end of the story, right? The victory is the Lord's. And he remains seated on the throne, sovereign over all of these things. But ever since Genesis 3, the enemy has been in the full-time business of attempting to thwart God's kingdom. And how does he do this? By deceiving people. Those whom God would establish his kingdom through. If he can keep humans in that place of distrusting their creator, they're not going to live the way that God designed And as we progress through the Old Testament, it's clear that humans are entrapped by this lie over and over again. We choose autonomy instead of submission. And so God does a new thing by setting a people apart for himself. And Israel becomes this kingdom within the broader kingdom of the world. Exodus 19, 5 through 6 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And God takes them on quite the journey, right? We've spent a lot of time in their story. But in that era of Solomon, after all the battles have been won and peace reigns in Jerusalem, It seems like God's kingdom on earth has finally come. God's presence is in the temple. His people are together in their place, holy and set apart for the Lord. And they have purpose to represent him in their lives. So that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. But that cancer of sin cannot be eradicated. Because they can't keep covenant, God sends consequences for their sin. And it looks like his kingdom is in ruins. His presence removed, his people scattered, their place destroyed, and their purpose thwarted. We have the exile, a lackluster return home, and four centuries of divine silence. Had they exhausted God's mercy? 
Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? But see, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Through the prophet Isaiah, God is reminding his people of that exodus out of Egypt. There will be a true and better exodus to come, a way through the wilderness and streams of life in the barren places. And when Jesus appears on the scene, he did not provide the type of kingly deliverance they were expecting. You know this. But God was playing for the long game. Instead of overthrowing their Roman enemy, he was overthrowing their spiritual enemy. And they were so sin sick, they didn't even know what sort of remedy they even needed. Just like with any ailment, if you only treat the symptoms and never the root cause, it's all just a band-aid. God was out for the heart. And without replacing his people's stone-cold hearts with ones that pulse with his life, they would never be able to live with him in kingdom. Never discover what it truly means to be human. Our meek and lowly Savior's first battle cry was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He spent those three years of earthly ministry teaching them what the kingdom of God is like. Parable after parable for those who had ears to hear. Part of that revelation was exposing the heart of the law. What felt like a bunch of rules was actually God's invitation into holiness and flourishing. What does it look like to live rightly oriented to God and rightly oriented to others? in his kingdom design. But Jesus taught them that God was after a heart level obedience, not just outward actions. Remember the prophecy in Jeremiah, I will write my law on their hearts and they will all know me. His teachings and commands were, and still are, so counterintuitive. Hence the set apartness. The values of the kingdom of God stand in stark contrast to the values of the kingdom of the world. Where death and darkness reign, you take revenge. You trust no one. You defend yourself at all cost. But where life and light reign, you forgive. You lay down your rights. And you entrust yourself to God. I lay before you life and death. Choose this day whom you will serve. Another way Jesus revealed the kingdom was through miraculous signs. And one of the purposes of these signs was to prove that he was divine, essentially authenticating his message. But I want you to see something else. Think of the ways that he confronted the effects of sin and reversed them. He made sick people well, healed from disabilities, cast out demons, raised from the dead. This is kingdom restoration. None of this pain or brokenness will have a place in the new heavens and earth. Jesus was making all the sad things come untrue. His first coming wasn't the time of glorification. It was a time of redemption. 
but he brought with him, however, a taste of what's to come. Once that redemption was accomplished, Christ returned to his heavenly home, but everything had changed. In Acts 2, God sends the Holy Spirit as an extension of his very presence and life to dwell within believers. Those redeemed by the blood of Christ are now joined to him and remade into this new humanity, once again able to be rightly oriented to God, rightly oriented to others, eternally reconciled to him. And it's in this newfound life that the church is born. Their eyes have been opened to the mystery of the gospel and they cannot keep quiet about it. So what do they do? They proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Israel was a conduit of God's blessing because Jesus came from that stump of a family tree. But now the church is the conduit of God's blessing because we have the message of eternal salvation for a lost and dying world. And mystery of mysteries, this gift is no longer a Jewish privilege, but is extended to every tribe, tongue, and nation. This was God's heart from the very beginning. Ephesians 2 lays this out beautifully. The first 10 verses walk us through the gospel, and then the rest of the chapter explains how this new humanity in Christ is made up of both Jew and Gentile. This should be review if you're an LAFCer and you've been listening to the sermons. <laughs> I'm going to start reading in verse 18 of chapter 2. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In him, we are joined to God, and in him, we are joined to one another. So what do those four P's of kingdom look like right now in the church age? How is God's presence among us? I just told you. How is God's presence among us? The Holy Spirit, right. Who are God's people? The church. Where is his place? the world, global. And our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Both in who we are and what we do, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In our grand gospel story, creation, fall, redemption, glorification, you are here. Remember that quote I shared with you at the beginning that we can only know who we are and what we're supposed to do if we know what story we find ourselves a part of. This narrative is so much bigger than our individual lives. It's like we're all part of a play, but here in 2021, we're entering the stage at act like 
number 236. It's a really long play, okay? But the point is, you need to know what happened in the previous acts, and you need to know where we're headed to know what your role is supposed to be. What does this context mean for your life? This past Sunday, I was teaching the third graders about the early life of Moses, and somehow we got onto the theme of the new heavens and earth. Because that connects. I'm not sure. You know, their little squirrely brains are like, okay, we're just going to follow this bunny trail and see where it leads. I kind of love it. Um, anyways, one little boy said something about Revelation being a prophecy of the end of the world. And I was like, yeah, that's right. And I said, we know the end of the story, but we're not there yet. And this other little boy, because he his wheels are turning, he goes, wait. So that means we're in the story of the Bible? And I was like, yes, buddy, that's right. <laughs> it was the sweetest thing. I knew you all would appreciate that. So this story not only informs you of who God is and his purposes, but also of your role in his story. Like we said in the Exodus study, you were saved from and you were saved for. Christ's work of redemption saved you from sin and death but it also saved you for him, to be joined to him, to delight in him and to fulfill his purposes. Remember, God will establish his kingdom both among and through his people. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 speaks to this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Grace isn't meant to be a gift that we receive and then we just go on our merry way and do whatever we want. But rather, it's meant to be a gift that prompts us to give ourselves back to God. Our actions and our obedience are to be shaped by this story and fueled out of love and gratitude for God. The New Testament is full of commands, right? And in some ways, they're even harder to keep than the Old Testament law. How do you view the obedience of the Christian life? I think it can often feel like, oh, I know I should do this because it's the right thing or because the Bible says so. But don't forget the heart of the law, both old and new. The commands of the Lord bring life. I didn't say ease, I said life. Rightly oriented to God and rightly oriented to others, walking closely with the Lord will cause you to enjoy him more fully. And that is worth far more than any difficulty that obedience may bring. And may I remind you, you're not left alone. I know how frustrating it can feel in your spiritual journey to feel like you're taking two steps forward and one step back. But God's playing for the long game. The spirit within you is transforming you day by day. He's literally changing our affections to treasure Christ above all else. And it turns out the more you love Christ, the less enticing sin appears. And the more your mind is renewed by the spirit, the more you see things rightly, what's really real. 
And this journey of sanctification is a team sport. We participate with the Spirit by cultivating our affection for the Lord and starving our appetite for sin. This isn't a secret formula. He has given all that we need for life and godliness. You are joined to him. You have his word in your hands. You have direct access to the Father in prayer. And you have a spiritual family in Christ. Lean into those graces. He wants you to grow up mature and complete in him. You can search the world, but you will not find the truth of what it means to be a human anywhere else. You have an individual story. Your life matters in the scope of eternity. But it matters because it's connected to something so much bigger. You will only find fulfillment in being reconciled to God and submitting to him as Lord and King of your life. He's invited us in to his beautiful design. Let's take this back to our current kingdom context. In your homework, I asked you to draw two overlapping lines indicating the trajectory of the kingdom of the world and of the kingdom of God. Did you come up with something like this? <laughs> the point is, since the fall of man, the kingdom of this world under the rule of Satan is passing away. It's on a downward trajectory. Scripture is clear. This world is passing away. The enemy will be destroyed. And as Satan knows, his time is short. However, the kingdom of God is on an upward trajectory. Ever since Christ initiated this restoration project, the kingdom has been steadily growing, spreading to fill the whole earth. His purposes cannot be thwarted by sin. And I feel the need to continually remind you, it may look like the kingdom of God is falling apart, especially here in post-Christian America. We're living in a time where the church at large looks a lot more like the world than it used to. And it seems like every week another public Christian figure comes out saying they've deconstructed their faith. We should be grieved by this, certainly. But instead of it burying you in discouragement, let it embolden you to live out of your life in Christ. The true church is alive and growing God's kingdom is not crumbling. This story is still unfolding, but you can be absolutely certain that God will see it through to completion. Here's the thing. The kingdom of God is an already but not yet sort of kingdom. Christ brought the kingdom of God to earth, began the restoration project, but it's not here in fullness I said a few weeks ago that our current reality is exile. We're apart from our true home with the Lord. How can we simultaneously live in exile and the kingdom of God? I like to think of it like an underground kingdom. Think of our brothers and sisters around the world that don't have religious freedom. We've been talking about the kingdom in very concrete ways, which is right and good. But the spiritual reality of his kingdom is that it's anywhere that people are joined to Christ and living under his authority. And that can happen anywhere, anytime, under any human authority. 
Many people and governments are still bowed out flat to the enemy, the prince of this world. But the church becomes this global, subversive kingdom. It is growing and it will not be stopped. So those aspects of kingdom, presence, people, place, and purpose, we know in part now, but one day they will become full and tangible realities. You want a clue of how to pray for society? Pray for the church. And quite honestly, it's paradoxical to live in this place, this already but not yet kingdom. And over the years, the church has held different beliefs as to what this looks like. Let me explain it like this. So we know we're here, somewhere between redemption and glorification. This is the church age. Now the pitfalls come when we swing to one of those endpoints and stay there. So those stuck on redemption will be very aware of the depravity of their sinful nature, what God has saved them from. And so they will rehearse the gospel as to never forget how wretched of a sinner they are. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing. But in this extremist position, it lends itself to just kind of like hunkering down and just biding our time until the final curtain call when Christ returns. And conversely, some believers take the fast track to glorification. They're very aware of what God has saved them for. So this emboldens them to activism and mission. And again, this is a good thing. But in the extremist position, there lies this belief that, well, if God's kingdom has come, then all of his promises are true for the here and now. Do you see how both of those extremes can have their downfalls? The one stuck on redemption is slow to engage the culture around her. She's hesitant to embrace this idea of the spirit working in and through her. The one pegged on glorification is assuming that deliverance and victory and healing will be the result of every scenario of brokenness because that's what God's kingdom means. There's just no box, though, for when God says no. It's true that Christ has delivered us from the penalty of sin through his death and the power of sin through his resurrection. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now within us. But the presence of sin in this world still remains. And as long as that's the case, there will be pain and there will be brokenness and there will be death. The beauty of the kingdom come is the presence of sin will also be removed. And with it, all of its horrible effects. But we're simply not there yet. The kingdom of God comes by the work of Christ. And the work of Christ, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, include tremendous suffering as well as tremendous victory. The kingdom continues to grow now through the spirit-filled church, both in tremendous suffering and tremendous victory. Already but not yet. We don't get to choose or to tell God which path we're going to walk. But we can trust his heart come what may. His purposes will be fulfilled. So even on those darkest days of exile, 
We hold fast to this as an anchor for the soul that his story will be brought to completion. There's a true and better home that awaits those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And the best part about that home is the unhindered presence of God. To be with him is what our souls are designed for. But in the meantime, sisters, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. I began this study by reading an excerpt from our well-loved Jesus Storybook Bible. And so it seemed fitting to close with this as well. I love the author's take on the final end cap of the scriptures in Revelation 21 and 23. I even have the pictures for you. I see a throne, and on the throne is a king, and the king is Jesus. All around the throne, people are bowing down. They are giving him their treasures. There are loud cheers and clapping, clapping and bright laughter like a thousand waterfalls, and everyone bursts out singing a new song. This is our king, the lamb who died so we don't have to, our rescuer, all honor and glory forever and ever. And every creature everywhere in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea joins in. And then from all around, a wide, immense, beautiful silence. And I see Satan, God's horrible enemy, thrown down and defeated. I see a sparkling city shimmering in the sky, glittering, glowing, coming down from heaven, from the sky. Heaven is coming down to earth. God's city is beautiful. Walls of topaz, jasper, sapphire, wide streets paved with gold, gleaming pearl gates that are never locked shut. Where is the sun? Where's the moon? They aren't needed anymore. God is all the light that people need. No more darkness and no more night. And the king says, look, God and his children are together again. No more running away or hiding. No more crying or being lonely or afraid. No more being sick or dying. Because all those things are gone. Yes, they're gone forever. Everything sad has come untrue. And see, I have wiped away every tear from every eye. And then a deep, beautiful voice that sounded like thunder in the sky says, Look, I am making everything new. It was hard to squeeze all that John saw into words and fit it onto a page and cram it into a book. All the words on the, all the pages of all the books in all the world would never be enough. I am the beginning, Jesus said, and the ending. One day, John knew heaven would come down and mend God's broken world and make it our true, perfect home once again. And he knew in some mysterious way that would be hard to explain that everything was going to be more wonderful for once having been so sad. And he knew then that the ending of the story was going to be so great that it would make all the sadness and tears and everything seem just like a shadow that is chased away by the morning sun. I'm on my way, said Jesus. I'll be there soon. John came to the end of his book, but he didn't write the end 
Because of course, that's how stories finish. And this one is not over yet. So instead, he wrote, come quickly, Jesus. Which perhaps is really just another way of saying, to be continued. Would you pray with me? Father, you are um, so magnificent, so glorious, so holy. And we just pause again three quarters of the way through this story to thank you with grateful hearts for all that you have done, the way you have extended yourself to us in our sin and made a way for us to be reconciled to you. Father, on those dark days, may we remember the truths of this story, what's really real about who you are and your kingdom now and to come. Father, grant us boldness, courage, and faith to persevere. We love you and we want to enjoy you now all the while looking forward to when we will be with you face to face. Would you join me in praying the Lord's Prayer? The words are on the screen if you need them. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.